We're going to look at Revelation 20 this morning, and we're building up now towards the real climax in Revelation, where God wins becomes very, very obvious. Now, Revelation 20 is not a long chapter, but actually it punches way above its weight. It's packed with dynamite in a number of different ways, and I'm going to explore it under three simple headings, confusing news, bad news, and good news. Now you say, what are you doing calling it confusing news? Well, what I'm referring to with confusing news is the first 10 verses of Revelation 20. And I don't propose to actually read those, but I do want to refer to them because I like to do that sort of thing, and I honestly feel it's fair to you that I do. The first 10 verses of Revelation tell us about a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and it's called the millennium. You're gonna, if you don't know about that, that's a phrase that you'll hear in some Christian circles. Now, this millennium is clearly comes before the end of the world and the great day of judgment, which is where we'll focus in the second half of the chapter. Now, I don't want to focus majorly on this, but I do want to give it some attention. Phil Moore says of those 10 verses, they are the least understood and most debated verses in the whole of Revelation. Least understood and most debated verses. Genuine evangelical Orthodox Christians hold very different views, very different interpretations of Revelation 20 verses 1 to 10. When does this thousand-year reign occur? How does it fit in with the rest of Revelation? How does it fit in with the rest of Scripture? Leon Morris says, evangelicals are sometimes bitterly divided over Revelation 10 verses 1 to 10, it is necessary to approach this chapter with humility and charity. So I'm going to do that for about five minutes, and then I'll lose all my humility and charity. No, no, that's not true. So I'm going to try and do that. Now, depending on how you interpret these verses, you can be, if you're a Christian, you can be a post-millennialist, an historic pre-millennialist, a pre-tribulation pre-millennialist or an amillennialist. Uh, those are the main viewpoints. You can be a full-on Bible-believing Christian, loving Jesus and following him and holding any one of those views. And frankly, all of them have got strengths and all of them have got weaknesses. Now, I'm going to just tell you what I am. I am an amillennialist. Now, an amillennialist means that I see the thousand-year reign referred to here as a symbolic way of describing the whole period from Christ's ascension until Jesus Christ comes back again. I don't want to argue that I'm correct because I think that is exactly what you have not got to do when you get in here. And good friends, even in this church, will hold different views, I'm sure. In fact, I think I know that. But I believe that if Revelation contains repeated overviews of AD history, which I think it does, I think this is another one. And very simply, I think it for these reasons. These verses cannot take part place chronologically after what we've been looking at in Revelation 17, 18, and 19, the fall of Babylon. Because in these verses, God hating human society is still very much alive and well once Satan 
engages with it again in verse 8, musters them to attack God and his people and the city he loves, the church. So it seems hard to see this chronologically as coming after the Babylonian chapters of the fall of Babylon. Also, secondly, no other scripture talks explicitly of Christ ruling on earth for a thousand years before the final judgment. And I think that's quite important because whatever we are looking at in the Bible, we always have to be careful about building a doctrine which is found in just one place of scripture. And if that place happens to be the rather notoriously symbolic uh, apocalyptic literature, which we're looking at, I think it probably means we're a little, even a little more cautious. Thirdly, the Bible elsewhere consistently points to one return of Jesus Christ, one second coming of Christ. The literalist interpretation, some of the other ones of this millennium, would probably have a staged or two returns. The Bible seems to also point to one resurrection for believer and unbeliever, and to a terrible sort of climax to history rather than a utopian end, which is slightly where the post-millennialists go, believing there'll be a thousand-year reign of the church successfully throughout the world. And I think that's difficult to fit in with the rest of Scripture. Now, fourthly, even though you can easily argue that Satan does not seem to be bound in history at the moment, AD history, actually... His ability to blind the minds of unbelievers is significantly weakened. And Jesus talked about binding the strong man in order to plunder his goods. And that resonates with what we know has happened with the gospel. Things are very different AD to BC. The old covenant did not have a great degree of impact on the nations, whereas the new covenant in Jesus has been massively successful. The gospel has spread to the whole world. There are huge churches in countries that were once locked in darkness and idolatry, whether you're talking about somewhere like Korea or some South American countries or many other countries. There's there's a breakout of the gospel that has progressed steadily through the last 2,000 years. After Jesus died, rose, and ascended on high. It seems that there is a power to open the eyes of men and women to the gospel. There is a releasing. Satan no longer has the same power to bind the nations up. Next, fourthly, or whatever it is, when the risen victorious Jesus reigns on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, it's quite difficult to see how there can be a rebellion against him. Jesus, who is King of kings and Lords of lords, reigning at the right hand of the Father, comes to earth and actually is another wave of rebellion, although it's put down. Seems a little unlikely. So I actually do believe that the millennium represents the here and now, the church age, the gospel age, the era sometimes called the last days, right up until the return of Jesus. Now, that interpretation does not answer all the questions. In fact, it leaves some aspects of those verses a little unsatisfactory. And that is why we all need humility about those sort of things. However, that view, amillennialism, does leave us on the front foot. We are no longer saying, as different interpretations can, that one day the Jews will take the gospel of the kingdoms of the whole world, or that uh, there'll be a golden age when the church is ruling over the whole world uh, uh, and and we look for these things. It, It actually in some of those interpretations, take the pressure off us. But actually the reality is now Jesus is all authority and power. 
the Great Commission is full of it. Matthew, eight, Matthew 28, for example, you know, in my name, go to every nation and make disciples. You know, in Mark 16, lay your hands on the sick, deliver people from demons. There is a sense in which there's an authority and a victory that we're to take out to the whole world now. We're to be on the front foot proclaiming the gospel. We're to expect trouble and battles like we see in the millennium and elsewhere, that sometimes the enemy, perhaps towards the end, to a great degree, will fight back. But Jesus, in the end, will return and we will be victorious. Now, here's the most important thing to say about all this. All the millennial views do not need to cause any division in the church because they all acknowledge the most crucial truth that Jesus Christ will return, defeat Satan, and reign forever. And this is even more important. Whatever the millennium is and whenever it occurs... Jesus Christ, in that period, will unite all believers. Therefore, they should never allow it to be a cause of division by arguing about what it means. I once heard a South American preacher, Jan Carlos Ortez, many years ago, about the late 70s, I think, and he said he was a pan-millennialist because he believed it would all pan out in the end which I thought was quite a nice way of settling it. So you can be a pan-millennialist, and perhaps that's where we all ought to rest in terms of detail. But whatever you believe about the correct interpretation of those verses, it doesn't alter the conclusion of history that we're now going to read, which comes at the second half of Revelation 20. This is a day in which every one of us in this room will be involved. We are about to read a bit of our own future. Every one of us. We are reading a bit of our own future. We're getting a glimpse of something where we will all be involved. So we're going to read Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is where we focus for the rest of our time. Two things, the bad news and the good news. These verses raise another fundamental controversy. (laughs) Judgment and hell. In a sense... The doctrine of final judgment and hell stands for everything our contemporary culture rejects. What I'm about to talk about is absolutely a red rag to a bull to contemporary culture that we live and breathe in and work in and have neighbours in. Modern 21st century Western culture does not like what we're about to speak about. 
things like this, that God's love is deeply connected to his justice. That human beings are sinful by nature and sinful by choice. That Jesus is the only saviour and that faith in him is the only way to be right with God. That all sin will ultimately be punished, either in Christ or in the person taking it on themselves. Now, this is difficult for us all. It's difficult in any age. It's not just difficult for us in the 21st century. And we need to tread a little carefully and thoughtfully in it. Hell is a tragedy. The doctrine of hell should horrify us. It should disturb us. It should break our hearts. But the problem is not hell. The problem is not God. The problem is sin. And we need to remember that. The problem is fundamentally doing the wrong things, offending God, rejecting God, turning your back on God, being rebellious against God, and the fruits of that in our lives. That's the real problem area, not these doctrines. And only when we recognize God's holiness do we fully understand the magnitude and the horror of sin. And only when we're aware of the awfulness of sin do we understand the price that Jesus Christ paid for us. And this doctrine drives us into that ground where we need to go. And only when we grapple with the punishment of sin in hell does the extent of Christ's atoning death get into our spirits and we grasp something that we often sing about of God's amazing grace. Only as we get the magnitude of these things do we really get the magnitude of God's grace and love. Now to speak about judgment and hell is dangerous, but I would argue that to not speak about it is more dangerous. God wants us to talk about all he says in his word, the whole truth. God is not embarrassed with where we are going this morning. God wants us to speak the whole truth. We owe it to our fellow human beings, our fellow sinners, to tell them the full unabridged story that God tells in his Bible. God's love and forgiveness and the hope of the gospel are there, and they're good news, and we're going to get to them in a few minutes. But we have to understand why they're good news and how it fits together. And these six verses are amongst the most sobering verses in the whole Bible. John sees the great final day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And verse 11 carries something that I find amazing and awe-inspiring and actually quite frightening in a glorious way. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. There's this total overawing sight of God. And that will dominate everything on that last great day of judgment. There will be no shouting. There will be no shouting abuse at God. There will be no defiance. People will not be arguing. We're told elsewhere, every mouth will be stopped. Richard Dawkins' mouth will be stopped. Every mouth will be stopped. Well, I will tell God a thing or two when I get there. You won't. 
you really, really won't. You really won't. Because you'll suddenly get it. There is a God. It's a huge white throne. Everything crowds back from the presence of God. It's like he suddenly takes every shield away. And the God of all creations is there on his throne. All will be silent before the judge of all the earth. We will all be there. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Everyone is destined to stand before God one day. Hebrews 9.27, this is Christian theology, by the way, we need to get it, says it is appointed unto man, men and women, to die once, and after that the judgment. Let me tell you categorically this morning, there is no such thing as reincarnation. Don't even think about it. There is no such thing. It's a devil's trick to make you think you'll have another chance. There is no second chance. There is no, let's have another go. There's no karma. There's no, this is what God has told us. You live, you die, and after that, the judgment. Great and small will be there. Kings and queens will be judged the same as homeless beggars. Presidents, prime ministers, dictators, you and me, all judged on the same ground, if you like, before the great white throne. Now, it says the books are opened. Everyone is in the books. God has got a record of everyone's works and words. He's recorded everything. Now, you might say, oh, how can he do that? He's God. He made it. The beginning. If you can have an iPad that can remember everywhere you've logged in in the last four years, which I happen to have, which still amazes me. God can do that. I can still go to Madrid. I get quite excited about it. I can go to India and Madrid and just... Oh, and my iPad remembers from about two years ago the Wi-Fi there in Mumbai or Madrid or wherever I am. Now, if that feeble little useless thing that men make... Although I quite like my iPad. It's not useless. <laughs> if that can do things like that, what do you mean how can God know? God knows. He knows the end from the beginning. He's recorded it all. He's big enough to do that. Now, of course, books are another aspect of the visionary, symbolic nature of Revelation. And actually, there is a danger, after what I said about the millennium, that you might say, well, John, is this all another uncertain thing? Books, it's a visionary picture. You know, do we know quite what happens? How much of it can we take literally? Let me say to you, this is of a different order to the actual thousand-year rule of Christ type millennium thing, the detail. Because this doctrine we're looking at, everything these verses contain, these verses 11 to 15, is clearly repeated throughout Scripture. Both in Old Testament and New Testament, you'll find references to the final day of judgment, the day of the Lord, the day when God judges all people. In fact, and this is quite interesting and quite sobering again, the future day of judgment and the punishment of the wicked is addressed, hear this, by every single New Testament author. And you cannot say that about many doctrines. There are not many doctrines where every single New Testament author refers to them one way or another. But this doctrine of the final judgment day and the punishment of the wicked is one of them. Here's another challenging fact. Jesus 
spoke the most of any individual in the New Testament, or in the Bible actually, about judgment and hell. He referred to it most frequently and most directly. One writer says, Jesus himself stands out as hell's chief defender. That's quite sobering in itself. So this doctrine doesn't leave you any wriggle room. Of course you can reject it and say it's all nonsense, you don't believe any of it. But it doesn't leave you any wriggle room of saying, well, you know, it's Revelation, books, a little bit, you know, what's it mean? Who knows, like the millennium, six different views. No, no, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. The truth that emerges from these verses is simple and it's in a way glorious and, and very uh, challenging. The life of every person, including Christians, is going to be consulted on that day and looked at. And we all in this room will give an account of ourselves. Now, most of us would love to give an account of other people. I could give a pretty good account of quite a lot of people, but actually, God won't be interested in an account I give of Jim or Steve or Marianne or oh, a whole load of people. So I give very colourful ones to some people. But no, no, no. I will be giving an account only of me, John Groves, and you will only have to give an account of you, not of me or anybody else. And here are some other scriptures quickly that reinforce what I'm saying about the books being opened and all the details looked at. Look at Matthew 12, 36, if you could pop it up for me. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That's Jesus speaking. <laughs> every empty word. <gasps> That's pretty detailed. And this is going to be true of everyone. No one is so important that they're immune from judgment. And no one is so unimportant that judgment is inappropriate. Everything will be brought to light. Look at Romans uh, 2, Romans 2, verse 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is Paul writing now. Now, this isn't apocalyptic literature, but it's equally challenging. When the day when God judges people's secrets, every idle word. You see, being a human being, man or woman, young or old, being a human being has awesome privileges and awesome responsibilities. We are made in the image of God and we are accountable to our maker. And part of our dismissing of all this is a cheapening of human life, actually. But humanity is precious. Every individual is unique to God. Every individual is known to God, and every individual is ultimately accountable to their maker, to God. We're told that judgment will be fair according to what they have done. Verse 13. We've got to remember God already knows every detail. God already knows your secret thoughts. He knows what you do in your own privacy. He knows completely all of those things. This is about justice being done and being seen to be done. And it's quite clear that we may not be saved by our deeds, but we can sadly be condemned by our words and deeds. There's lots of things that are tantalizing and hinted at in Scripture. They're even hinted at here. There is a hint in a number of places in the Bible that there are degrees of punishment, that judgment takes account of light 
In other words, not just what you did, but what you understood about what you did. So the more light you have, the more scary this gets. So the more you know, (laughs) and the more you define and defy and, and turn your back on what you know, the more serious it can be. But that doesn't mean that the rest is easy. The basis of judgment is guilt, not ignorance. It is guilt, proven behavior and words that are sinful and wrong. We learn from these verses that Satan's power is not eternal. Actually, despite his huffing and puffing, he is a creature and he meets his end and his minions meet his end here, the demons as well. And there's no release from the lake of fire. Whatever the millennium means, the lake of fire, when Satan is thrown in there and the demons, that is clearly forever. It's eternal. And it comes up again and again. The Greek emphasizes the completeness and the eternity of what is done here. Now, hell itself is portrayed as a number of things in Scripture. Lake of fire, blackest darkness, place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and clearly they are pictures because you, you don't get a lake of fire and darkness. You know, we understand that. Like books are sort of pictures. They're sort of visionary pictures that John saw about a truth. But pictures to be any value have to have some relationship to reality. So actually they are not about something nice. They're about something pretty awful and disturbing. But clearly the message that comes through the Bible, and it sort of comes through here as well, is that you're choosing now which path you're on. There's a broad path that leads to destruction. And, and actually, if you want to stay where you are, taking the consequences of your actions and your words on yourself and not ignoring anything God's doing, there's a pathway that leads ultimately to destruction. C.S. Lewis described hell as the greatest monument to human freedom. And he went on to say, there are only two kinds of people in the end, Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. That you have chosen a path and you've chosen to not find an answer to it. You've stood on your own merits and they aren't very strong. And so the judgment is seen as being deserved in these verses. Now, as we even know we're touching, I know I'm touching stuff that's awkward to us in our culture, let's be very clear about Jesus and the other New Testament writers. They see this doctrine of judgment not as creating a moral problem, but as solving a moral problem. This doctrine solves a moral problem. Namely, the problem of rebellious, evil people, of sin and of human cruelty. And the fact that it appears to be allowed to run loose in our world. It appears that bad things don't always carry consequences. And this doctrine reminds us and tells us a truth that God will finally and completely execute a righteous judgment on all things and all people. And his judgments will be seen to be just and true. And actually, that should impact on our lives quite significantly. You can forgive other people freely. Why can you do that? Because it's not your place to judge, but you know God will judge. God will deal. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's his job. You need to understand that you were also forgiven a lot, so you can forgive people a lot. So forgiveness 
is rooted in an understanding of this doctrine that God is the judge, not me, and he will deal justly with everything. I think this doctrine also should provoke us to live carefully and righteously. We actually, as Christians, as well as anything else, we need to understand that what we're doing matters to God. Our words, our deeds, they, they are real to him and they matter to him and he weighs them and they have consequences. And we need to make sure we're not only reconciled to God, which is a huge big one we're going to touch in a few moments, but that actually we also live cautiously, if you like, God-fearingly, before him, even as Christians. Finally, this doctrine ought to motivate us in evangelism. God wants men and women to come to know him. He wants them to repent. The Bible tells us, Ezekiel 33, 11, one place, that God says he takes no pleasure in having to judge them and condemn them. Like a judge in our courts, this is not about what the judge likes and doesn't like. It's about weighing something and bringing righteous judgment. And it's the same for God. Peter tells us, the New Testament, that the reason the gospel age has gone on for so long is that God is patient and desiring that none should perish, everyone should come to repentance to be saved. So it's important that we warn people or, in our different ways, share what we're going to look at in the last few minutes, the good news. Because there is good news. In Revelation 20, verses 12 and 15, another book is mentioned, the book of life. Now, the book of life is mentioned a number of times in Revelation. We're not going to look at them all. In fact, we'll only put one other up. It's mentioned in Revelation 3, 5, Revelation 17, 8, and here this one, Revelation 21, 27. Let's just look at that one. Nothing impure will ever enter into the new heavens, new earth, Jerusalem, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is a lovely title for it, which I want you to remember over the next few minutes. The Lamb's book of life. Now again, this is something that you will get a lot of times in the Bible, this book. This book recording God's people, those who are his. Moses refers to it in Exodus 32, 32. Daniel refers to it in Daniel 12, 1. Jesus refers to it. Can we pop that one up? Luke 10, 20. Jesus says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus says the big thing, the most important thing to get and to love and to enjoy is that your names are written in heaven. Don't get excited that demons run away from you. Don't get excited so much about healings, miracles, and all the great things that happen down here. The big thing is that your names are written in heaven. And then Paul refers to it in passing in Philippians 4 verse 3. Let's put that one up. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So the Bible writers are conscious of this book, the book of life. One last one, Hebrews 12, and the Hebrew writer refers to it in a slightly more revelation-type way. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the, word, than the blood of Abel. Packed with stuff. But
But in there, one of the ways the church is defined is citizens of Zion, uh, the church of the firstborn. That's a brilliant phrase. That means that Jesus is the firstborn with all that the firstborn meant. It means the inheritance he got. You know, the firstborn uh, was one, inherited everything. But the church is the church of the firstborn. We all share in the firstborn. We all share in Jesus. Oh, going on morning. But also another way we're described is those whose names are written in heaven. That to be a follower of Jesus, to, 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 to know the Lamb, means your names are written in the book, Lamb's Book of Life. They're written in heaven. To be a citizen of Zion, to be of the church of the firstborn, means your names are written in heaven. Those who are in Christ are the people in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, you might have said, well, what about Moses and Daniel? This is about God's people. The only way you're ever going to be able to survive the Day of Judgment is if someone else bore your sins paid the price for what you did or I have done. I won't be able to bear that price myself, but someone else could and did, Jesus Christ. And in a way, the whole lot are under the Lamb. Okay, they look forward in the Old Testament. They didn't understand what we understand. They, they sacrificed animals knowing that sin meant death and that God had provided a way of forgiveness through various things that you can read about, Exodus, Leviticus, whatever. But they were actually looking forward to something they didn't fully understand. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Amen? It's all about Jesus. And, and, and anybody who's saved is going to have to be saved on that ground. They call for mercy, like the thief on the cross. If they were like a, the Old Testament, who, who sort of got that, that, that they were sinners and that God had provided some means of forgiveness, but the actual foundation of their security would not be an animal's blood. It's the blood of the Lamb. This timeless, beyond time, beyond be almost thing that we've sung about, the cross stands above it all, stands above history. It's the beginning and the end of it all, the blood of the Lamb. God has a book recording all who are his, and it's the Lamb's book of life that you say in your day, and as you can in your day so much more clearly, that I want you to forgive me, Lord, on the basis of what Jesus has done. I don't want to meet you as judge on my own merits. I want to meet you on the merits of Jesus Christ. I want you to cleanse me from all my wrong thoughts and all my wrong deeds and all the things that I know are piling up in your book. Please put me in the book of life. May the blood of the Lamb cleanse me. May his blood avail for me. May his death be my death. May I be healed by his stripes. May he have borne my sins and my iniquities. Here's a wonderful verse I often use. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God has got an answer to our fundamental problem, which is a sin problem. Our sin, our rebellion, our stupidity, our secret thoughts, most of us don't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's. We know this is true. We know. We are uneasy about it. I know John touched this last week. I noticed listening to his talk, John Hosier. But we know, we know. And, and God says, there is an answer. It's in my son. Look at this beautiful, this is the last verse I want to put up. It's so simple, we can miss it. For God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his one and only son, listen, that whoever believes in him shall not perish on that day of judgment, but will have eternal life. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. You're right. Let's applaud him. Come on, let's do it. Thank you, Jesus. God provided. There's a book, the book of the Lamb. And if you will believe on Jesus and, and trust in him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. You won't have to carry the consequences of your deeds and actions. I'm not sure whether they will even be mentioned, although I'm not sure, honestly not sure, or whether they'll be mentioned and then written across them. Because I, you know, paid in full, written across them. But actually, as Christians, what we do will be weighed. And there is a judgment seat of Christ, which is, comes elsewhere. Whether that's part of the whole process, only time will tell. But I assure you, you cannot, as a believer, live carelessly and think that won't matter. Because it all matters. It's all being weighed. And actually, our actions will vindicate whether we trusted in Jesus or not. Not that we got everything right. But God will know if in our hearts we knew him and we lived in fear of him, following him, asking him to forgive us when we failed, keeping short accounts, all the things we know. And there will be rewards for those who are faithful. Not, not about your actions, not about being successful, but more about character and faithfulness and walking with Jesus. And there will be a weighing of everything for all of us, not whether we're saved or unsaved. But the big thing that matters this morning is that the big change takes place and that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you can always say that, Lord, despite my awfulness, despite the things where I blew it and failed and let you down and sinned and rebelled and did horrible things that I'm ashamed of, I know the blood of Jesus cleanses me. I know that's what my plea is, not my performance, his performance. And that will make all the difference. So I appeal to you this morning, do you know that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life? You can actually know. This is a day of grace. This is a day of extension of God's mercy. We heard about that earlier. God does not want any to perish. He's provided an answer. Will you take the answer? And as Christians, will you live in the light of the answer? That it's all about Jesus and being in the Lamb's Book of Life. And your performance is going to be feeble at the best. And you're going to just have to live by grace and walk by grace and say, in myself there's no good thing, but everything is in him. Hallelujah, I'm trusting in him. That requires honesty, it requires humility, but it's necessary. Now, thank God, the day we've just read about has not yet come. Now is the day of salvation. Today is a day of salvation. But there will come a day which is the day of judgment. I really appeal to you all, everybody in my hearing, in the room or if you listen to me on, online or something, please ensure that you know God as your loving Heavenly Father now as you can before you meet him as your judge one day. Come through Jesus Christ, trust in him, say, Lord, forgive me, Lord, help me, cleanse me, make me your own. I want to be in Christ. I want to be in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you can be and will be. It's by faith alone. It's not by your deeds. It's by your faith in his work. It's grace alone. And it's an open, available offer for all of us now. But it doesn't go on forever. And one day, if you don't take that offer now, you may literally, eternally regret it. Let's pray and let the musicians come up.
Lord, I thank you that you are a saviour. Jesus, I love the gospel. I thank you, Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, you died for me. I thank you that your blood avails for me. I thank you, Father, that you are a, a just and true judge. I can't begin to understand how you will square circles that I don't see how you'll do it, but I know you will do it. And I know you understand the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, as well as our actions, and as well as our reactions and our words. And I know, Lord, that you have absorbed it, if I put it that way, all of it, and weigh it all. And Lord, I just want to say that I don't want to stand before you on my own merits, but on Jesus' merits. And when that book is opened, the Lamb's Book of Life, thank you, Lord, that I believe my name will be in it. And maybe it will be that my weaknesses and failures are reflected in another record, and then this other book's opened, and John, your name's in that one. So all of that has gone. Lord, I just want to thank you for that potential. I just want to thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. Please help us to enjoy it now while we can. I open, open every eye, open every heart in this room this morning. Let everyone know you as their Lord and their Saviour today. Amen. Can we sing before the throne, like you said? Let's stand and sing.